Good morning, morning. and happy Lord's Day. Day. It is the Lord's Day. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He died for our sins, and he rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And so we sing, and we preach, and we think, and we pray, and we fight sin from a position of victory because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And we celebrate that every Sunday. So... Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 10. We will look at verses 13 to 16, just four verses here. Hear then the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 10. Some people were bringing little children to Jesus, to him, so he might touch them, but his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we believe in your Holy Spirit. And we believe that as the local church gathers, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are the house of God. And that as your Spirit lives in us, he lives to glorify Jesus Christ in our hearts and minds. And so, Father, we pray that we would hear your Holy Spirit speaking through this text that he inspired and guided Mark to write. We pray that we would see the glories of Christ and that we would see the glories of Christ even in seeing children. We know that if your Holy Spirit doesn't help us, the flesh will dominate our lives. And so we want to confess afresh that we need you. We just sang it five times. We need you. Lord, we need you every hour, this moment, we need you. So bless us, Lord, because apart from you, we will waste our time and even worse, we'll be dominated by sin. We pray for any of our non-Christian friends who are here that you would strengthen them and that you'd give them faith to believe in Christ and conversion, Lord, that they would come to Christ and turn from their sins. We pray for our friends here who are visiting from other churches that they would take the grace poured out here in our gathering and bring it back to their home churches to strengthen their church body. And we pray that you'd build up our church body now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The story here is short, four verses. Jesus just talked about divorce as we studied last week. And now some people in the crowd are bringing their kids to Jesus. Women and men, fathers and mothers, maybe older brothers even, bringing little kids, babies, infants, little kids to Jesus so that Jesus would touch them. Much like a holy person, it's not uncommon in the practice of that day, if there's a holy person there and you get him to touch your kids, you felt some of the blessing of God channeled through the mediator of of, of this holy person, especially in the Old Covenant. This seems a little strange for us in the New Testament church when all of us are priests. But in the Old Covenant, this is not uncommon. That mediators brought the blessing of God to God's people. And so they are bringing their children to Jesus to bless the children and to touch them. 
Not because they were sick necessarily, but just because they knew it was for their spiritual good. Now, as these parents were bringing the children, the disciples did what in verse 13? To the parents. They rebuked the parents and they tried to stop them. They were preventing the parents from bringing the children. And they were even, you could probably read into this maybe, irritated with the parents. Can't you see that the master is busy right now? Can't you see that this is not the time or the place to bring your kids? Shouldn't they be in the children's ministry right now? Perhaps you might say today, what are they doing here talking to Jesus? Get them out of here. Now, as they're irritated and maybe angered by the parents, what does, what's Jesus' reaction in verse 14? When Jesus saw it, what was his reaction? He was what? Displeased. Does anyone have a different translation? Indignant. Angry. This is the only time in all of the gospel accounts where Jesus is this angry. This word indignant is used of the Pharisees when when the people were praising Jesus and they were saying, Hosanna to the son of David, save us. The Pharisees were indignant with Jesus that he was allowing them to praise him. The disciples as we're going to read later on in this chapter, when they're fighting about who's the greatest, two of the disciples got their mom to ask Jesus for a favor to get the two highest spots in Jesus' kingdom. How do you think the other ten reacted? Were they happy and said, you know what, we think John and James are the right guys for this job. No, they were indignant. Now, they were sinfully indignant for their own pride. The Pharisees were sinfully indignant. Jesus here is not sinfully indignant. He never sinned. But Jesus is mad here. He's angry at the disciples. A flare-up type of angry. It's holy, it's righteous, but it's a flare-up type of anger at this moment. They're angry with the parents. Jesus gets angry at them. Now, here's my question, and this is going to set up our sermon and our our thinking for for this morning. What was it that made Jesus so angry? I mean, if he's never gotten angry like this in all the Gospels, but here he gets this angry, we have a a window into the heart of Jesus here. If you can know what makes people angry, you can know a lot about their character, right? You know what they're passionate about by what they get angry over. And so if you can find out what makes Jesus indignant here, you can get a glimpse of his character. And that's what I want to do. But before we do that, This whole thing has to do with children and blocking off children. We need to think about children just to set up how does, how our culture think, we need to think about how our culture thinks about children today. Our culture does not see children correctly. In fact, many Christians influenced by the culture don't see children correctly. You know, to confess, even in my own study of this passage, I realize that I have not been looking at children correctly. And so we need this text, I need this text, and I think our church family needs this text. In 1976, a census data showed that 59% of women ages 40 to 44 had three or more children. Okay, 59% had three or more children. 20% had five or more children. And 6% had seven or more. So you got one-fifth of the population of mothers with five or more children. One out of five mothers. Today, or in 2006, four decades later, the census said that 28% of women had three or more. 4%, so it was 20 before, now it's 4% have five or more. We are now entering into that 4%. Thank you very much. 
And uh, just just half a percent have seven or more. My heroes, right? Uh, have have seven or more children. So you could see the declining value of children even among the culture. You know, um, in the New York Times blog, John Taves, in a blog post, he commented saying, it's immoral to have more than two children because more than two causes overpopulation. He says in his comment, if you choose more than two, then someone else must have fewer than two by the same amount or the horrors of overpopulation will happen. You don't have the right to cause overpopulation or force others to have fewer than two. We must create a new moral that makes it clear that we all have a responsibility to limit the number of children we create so that we do not cause the misery and young deaths that will happen to stop population from growing to infinity. He even has a website here, stopat2.org. Check that for more explanation. I look at that website and it says, I'll pull two quotes from this website. When we average too many children and are at the limit, We cause child mortality as a consequence of births. Births kill children. (laughs) Averaging too many children is worse than infanticide. Wow. That's strong. It talks about environmental concerns of overpopulation. So you get comments these days out in the culture. We do with our many children. Are these all yours? You must be very active. Um, you know, so another, let me tell you how this happens. Right? Or I've had one friend just say, stop it. Stop it. You know, just, you know, half joking, but half serious. You need to stop it. Um, and then other people say, not just to me, but just comments in general. These are all from the website, oh, a website on this. Your poor wife, your poor kids. Other reasons why the culture says not to have many kids, it goes against urban lifestyle where it's expensive. How can you travel if you have a lot of kids? I know that one of my goals is to take my wife to the land of Israel for a three-week study tour, and we're not, we just keep postponing it as, children's, as children come. So it's, it certainly put, us on the, put that on the back burner for my family. Um, the urban lifestyle also means alone time, recreation, and spending a lot and eating at nice places. You can't eat at nice places when you got four or five or six kids regularly. They also say late pregnancy is dangerous, so don't have kids. Or it's more expensive to raise a child to 18 than ever before. And these children are loud and out of control and they ruin your sleep. Why would we have more children? Why should anyone have more children? You know, when I was interviewing in 2009 for a a church that was a, a a pastoral search committee that needed a pastor, um, when I had three kids at the time, and they said, do you want more? I said, I want at least one more. Um, someone on the pastoral search committee, this is 2009, so it's not this church in case anyone's trying to figure it out, it's not, um, said, looked at me in the eye and said, you are socially irresponsible for having that, for wanting to have another kid. Said that in the interview. And there's a church search committee looking for a pastor. You know, I was just like, okay. Well, um, so... Uh, even even on Christianity Today, on their website, they talked about having kids. And one commenter said, did it ever occur to you that if you really want to serve God, you should have less children so you have more time to serve God? I confess that it's not just the culture and the church that has bad views of children. It's even my own view. Actually, when I was studying this text, I didn't even want to preach this text. 
Not because I don't like the Bible. I thought it was such a small, insignificant text. I wanted to lump it together with the divorce passage, or I want to lump it together with the next passage on the rich young ruler. I felt like, am I going to spend a whole week on these four verses? It seems too small and insignificant. And so the very rebuke that the disciples got, as I was thinking about it, I felt Jesus rebuking me and saying, how dare you? How dare you be little kids, even in the way you're reading and preaching the Bible? And so we need to think about this. Why was Jesus so angry? I have a list of more ways that I've failed to look at kids um, correctly. You can ask me after, for the sake of time, I'm going to move on. And let's answer this question. What made Jesus so indignant with the way you look at kids? You know, the heavens are telling the glory of God, Psalm 19. When you see the birds, you know that God provides. And weddings. Don't you see the glory of God in weddings? And marriages, isn't it fun to go to a wedding as a Christian when you know that Christ and the church are represented in the wedding? It's such a worshipful experience because there's so much meaning behind a wedding and a marriage. They show the glory of God and so do children. Just like you honor all marriages, whether Christian or not, since they point to Christ and the church, in the same way you are to receive and bless all children, not just those you know, because they all point to God's glory. God's glory is on display in the children you've seen today. You might not be seeing God's glory, but it's on display. Weddings are for worship, and so are marriages after the wedding, but so are children. When you see children, it should move you to worship God. Just seeing them. And so the main idea is see and receive children just like Jesus did. Okay? See and receive children just like Jesus did. So I have two points here. Point number one is see them. See them like Jesus. And there's five ways to see them like Jesus. And then receive them like Jesus. And I have two ways to receive them like Jesus. But let's go with the first one. See children just like Jesus did. This is verses 14 and 15. So look at the text. Here we are in verse 14. When Jesus saw them, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Why? For the kingdom of God, what? Belongs to such as these. So what does Jesus see when he sees children? Five things. Number one, he sees a Christian. He sees someone who possesses the what? According to verse 14. What belongs to these, the children, like, the people like these children? What belongs to them? The kingdom, right? It says that in verse 14. The kingdom belongs to such as these. So children are a picture of those who possess the kingdom. And who possesses the kingdom? Christians. In other words, children are a picture of a Christian because they possess God's kingdom. Now, what is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is his sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule. We are all in sin and under God's curse. But guess what? God won't let sin rule. He won't let Satan rule. He won't let us rule in our own pride. He will bring his sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule into this world, and he'll displace all of us from our little thrones and say, I'm the king, and I'm going to save you from your sin, and I'm going to reverse the curse in your life and in this whole world for those who are in Christ. Those who are refusing to be part of the kingdom will be cast out of the kingdom in the lake of fire in hell forever and ever. So if you own the kingdom, you own, you possess the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God. In other words, God has saved you and you're part of the kingdom that God is bursting into this world that will be completed when Christ returns. 
This is true in the Old Testament. They, they saw this. Isaiah 52, 7, just listen. It says this. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, and they proclaim in Zion, your God reigns. That's the rule. Now listen to this. When the Lord returns to Zion, this is what they were waiting for in the Old Testament, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So God is going to redeem his people and set up his kingdom on earth, and all the ethnic people groups of the world will see this kingdom, and this kingdom will stand forever and ever. First a thousand year reign, and then after that into the eternal state. And these people who are like children possess this kingdom. They're kingdom owners. They're part owners. This is not saying that all children will be saved when they grow up. This is not even saying that we should baptize children or babies. Babies in speci- specifically. We're not. We're Baptist, and it's not just by tradition. It's by biblical teaching. We don't believe you should be baptizing babies. This text is not teaching that you should baptize babies, though some argue that direction. You don't see it in the text, do you? Now, this might be evidence that all children who die in an infant state go to heaven. I do believe, I lean towards the fact that I think that's the case from Romans 1, but I don't think this text teaches this, though it does line up with it. The point here is this. People who are like children own the kingdom. And when you see a child, do you see that? Do you see a picture? Every time you look at a child, do you see a picture of a Christian who owns the kingdom? Jesus did. And that's why he was indignant with his disciples. But we've got to go further. That's not clear enough. Okay, what does it mean that he sees them like a Christian? Let's go to the second thing Jesus saw. Jesus sees not only that they're a picture of a Christian, Jesus sees our need. It's a picture of our need. Children are a picture of our need. What do children um, receive in verse 15? Or they enter into the kingdom, right? They enter the kingdom. And then in verse 14, they are, they belong, the kingdom of God belongs to them. So here's what we need. We need the kingdom of God, right? Don't we need God's salvation? Don't we need his sinner saving curse reversing rule? Why? Why do we need it? When you see a child, you see someone who's in need. Children are needy people. And we'll get to that in our next point. But children are needy. So are we. What do we need? Well, we're sinners. And the wages of sin is? Death. We are condemned for our sin, damned to hell. All of us are damned to hell for our sins. We need someone to save us from our sins. Not only that, we are cursed. We are cursed because of our sin, and we are cut off from the blessing of God, the favor of God, the smile of God. And therefore, we need someone to reverse the curse. Furthermore, we're part of this old creation, and this old creation is decaying under the curse and will be burned up in the end, according to 2 Peter chapter 3. So we need to be part of a new creation. In other words, when you see a child, you see someone who's needy. Do you see your own need when you see children? They are a picture of you. They are a picture of a Christian who realizes he has a need. See that? Children are so needy, so constant with their requests. Thirdly, what else do we see? So we see a picture of a Christian. We see a picture of our need. Thirdly, we see a picture of the gospel. We see the gospel when we see children, or at least we ought to. Look at verse 
15. So here, here we're going to answer this question. In what way are we to be like children? Because in verse 14 it says, The kingdom of God belongs to, to such people who are like children. So in what way do we need to be like children so that we can have the kingdom of God belong to us too, right? If we need God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule, if we need salvation from our sins, if we need the curse to be removed from us, how do I get that? I want that, right? And we want that, and we have that, we want all of our neighbors, we want the nations, Pastor Merle prayed, we give money so that the nations would get this, would get the kingdom. So in what way must we become like a child? Let me give you some wrong answers. Here is not what Jesus is saying in terms of how to become like a child. He's not saying you're supposed to be innocent or pure like a child. He's not saying that. Now, should you strive for purity? Yes, but we're sinners. We're already sinners. You know, perfect purity is already gone. That ship has sailed. You have no chance at that anymore. He's not saying go back to innocence or purity as if you could. He's not saying be like a child who's gullible. And lacks discernment. Right? We tell children, don't listen or don't follow a stranger. Because they're gullible. They're susceptible to that. He's not telling us to be immature like children. Particularly lacking self-control. And lacking perspective. Children lack perspective, right? If, if you're heating up the food in the microwave and it's going to be 30 more seconds... They don't have a perspective of 30 seconds. 30 seconds to them feels like eternity, right? They don't have perspective. So they just start, you know, flailing and flipping out. And that, that's, that's childish when they lack perspective. Jesus is not telling you to be childish. Now, adults can, we can, I can act childish. He's telling us that's not what he's saying here to be like a child, to lack perspective or lack self-control. That's not what he means here in terms of acting like a child. What does he mean then? Well... In verse 15 it says, I assure you, whoever does not do what? What does your translation say? Receive, okay? Whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will never enter it. Mine says, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God. So what do children do? They receive. Why do children receive? Because they know that they have a need. Children are not shy about having needs met, right? Children are not shy. They're humbly admitting and embracing the fact that they have need. That's why they, they'll, they'll keep bugging and nagging. And they have, no, they have no regard for shame, right, in that regard. And they're not ashamed. And in one sense, nor should they be. They just keep asking and asking and asking and asking because they know they have a need and they're not afraid to have someone else meet that need. They embrace that fact. They admit that fact. Their status is needy. That's just their status of their life, right? I was thinking about breakfast this morning. My kids wouldn't know what to do if I wasn't serving them breakfast this morning. Well, some of the older ones will now, but the younger ones won't. And there's a lot of other things they wouldn't know know what to do. And so they have needs, and they humbly trust someone outside of themselves to meet that need. But what do we do as adults? We naturally, and this is not always wrong, in, in the spiritual sense, it's wrong, but we naturally want to figure it out on our own, right? I mean, that's the goal of adulthood. I don't want my kids acting like kids when they're 20 and 30 and 40 years old, 
So you want them to figure it out on their own. And we as adults, we want to figure things out on our own. We don't want to ask for help, which is right in terms of maturity. We don't want to show weakness, which is not always a good thing. We don't want to show weakness... And we don't want to take favors from others and be seen as if we're completely dependent on someone else. And when you take that into the spiritual world, you're damned. When you take that attitude of I don't need help into the spiritual world, you're condemned. You're stuck in your sin. Because what do you need spiritually as a sinner? You need help. And can you, can you help and save yourself? No. And if you can't admit that you need spiritual help as a non-Christian or even as a Christian, then you betray what Jesus is telling you that, that Christians act like. Namely, they admit and know their needs. So here's the good news. The good news is that we get to receive the kingdom in being like a child and not having to prove ourselves or earn kingdom entrance. That is good news. You know why? Because one, we could never earn it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn the kingdom. You cannot earn God's acceptance. You cannot earn by your religious practices or your own righteousness, you cannot earn a reversal of the curse. It's impossible. And that's good news. Because every religion of the world is telling you to jump on the treadmill. And you know, if you jump on a treadmill, there is no end to the treadmill. That is not good news. That's tiring and futile, right? So if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I want to share this good news with you. The good news is we want to clarify that Christianity is not religion and it's not irreligion. Christianity is not religion. Religion says you earn God's blessing and you earn God's kingdom by doing good, by keeping the rules, and by looking respectable before others. Irreligion says you deserve God's blessing because you are who you are and you just deserve it because you're you. So you don't need to do anything. You don't have a need. For this one, religion says you have a need and you can earn it. Irreligion says you don't even have a need. You're just you and you're good enough. Just be yourself. Now the gospel says to this, no, you're not good enough and you'll never be good enough and you don't deserve it. And the gospel also says, and you can't earn it. The gospel says you'll never be good enough, but it also says that God will give it to you. He'll give you the righteousness he requires in Christ Jesus. Why would God give sinners who act like they don't need help, why would he give them help? To people who will not humble themselves like children, which is all of us. For those who will not humble themselves like children, why would God help them when they don't want God's help? Answer, because Jesus became like a child and humbled himself and trusted God. Turn to Mark 14. Do you remember Mark 14, verse 33? You're there in Mark chapter 10, just turn to the right. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself and became like a child himself. Mark 14, verse 33. Jesus is confessing another emotion here. He took Peter, James, and John with him. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was deeply distressed 
and horrified in verse 33. Verse 34 says, Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow. My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went on a little farther, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. He's acting like a what? Child. Daddy. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. I have a need. Take this cup from me. Take it away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus Christ humbled himself like a child, not just by becoming a child, Christmas story, but humbling himself in the garden like a child, being willing to trust his father, even to the point of taking the cup of God's wrath and dying on the cross for our sins. Why can God be gracious to you and me when we are so proud and arrogant and sinful and refuse his help? Because Jesus Christ humbled himself and became like a child for us. Amen? This is the gospel. We have a savior. This is the good news. The good news is, so if you're not a Christian, listen up. The good news is that God made you and created you, yet we sinned and rebelled against God, and therefore we deserve his judgment. He said, PJ, I thought that was good news. That's not good news. No, it's not. Not yet. We are condemned for our sins. Here's the good news. That Jesus Christ was sent into the world by the Father to live the life we should have lived. He dies on the cross for our sins, drinking the cup of God's wrath, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God's answer, I have forsaken you because I'm going to be gracious to people who will become like children and trust in you. And so you are going to die for every single sin of every single sinner who would ever believe. You're going to take it all. And when you take it all, I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to save them. And so Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead on the third day. And now he says, if you will repent and trust in Jesus Christ like a child, you will be saved. If you trust in Jesus like a child. That's what children do. They know they have a need and guess what they do? They say, Lord, save me. I turn from my sins. I trust in you. This is Matthew 18.3. Matthew 18.3 says, Jesus says, you must convert like a child or turn like a child. When you tell a child they need something, they don't question you as much as an adult, right? And that's right. I mean, we want adults, I mean, in, 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 the, in the physical, social world, we want to have discernment. But in the spiritual world, don't act like a dad or a mom. You're a child before God. Whatever God says, just trust him. Just do it. Just believe it. Just embrace it. Just throw yourself in. That's what God's telling you to do. Christ died for your sins. Just trust in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, God is telling you, if you trust in Jesus today and repent from your sins, he will forgive you of all your sins. He will give you the kingdom and he will give you his Holy Spirit who will begin to transform your life to live a kingdom life. That's the good news. And that's the gospel. So you see, when you look at children, what do you see? You see... You see a Christian, you see your need, you see the gospel, a free gift of salvation if you'll just take it. That's what you see when you see children. Fourthly, you see the father who gives the gift. You see the father who gives the gift, right? In in, in verse 15, they're receiving the kingdom. Who's the one giving it? God is, right? And so if you see a child receiving something, you also see a picture of God who is generous and kind and warm in giving. 
And that's what Matthew 11 says. Jesus prays, I praise you, Father, because you have revealed these things to little children. And then we just read, Brother Jim read up here, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What will God give? Rest. God is generous. He's giving. And when you see a child who's needy, and you see that child having their needs met, guess what you see? You see a picture of God who meets our needs and gives rest and gives the kingdom. You see a picture of a generous dad, right? And shouldn't that lead you to worship the the father? You know, studying this passage this week, I usually put my kids to sleep and then I'll, I'll bless them. And we usually go over our highs and lows of the day. What was your high today? What was your low today? Well, sometimes I get so tired. I don't even want to hear the highs and the lows. I confess. I just want to get in, put them to sleep, bless them and, and, and get out. And I actually did that one night where I just blessed one child, went to the next child. And then, uh, that child said, Abba, they call me Abba, which is dad. Abba, you didn't ask for my high and low today. And I was like, what is your high and low? You know, and I went back to the bed. I was like on my way halfway out the room. And I was like, what is your high and low? And God rebuking me. And what I saw there, though, here's a picture of seeing God. What I saw is how God's not like me. God's not too tired for me as a child. I'm too tired for my kids. I'm a little cranky. But God loves communing with and communicating to his children. And he loves hearing from his children, right? Now I don't, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm a sinful dad and I obviously was failing in my heart at that point, but I learned something about God. So that's my point is when you see children, do you see God and do you move to worship God? God, thank you that you actually want to hear about my highs and lows, right? Thank you that I can pray to you and, and you, you'll actually receive me and you want to commune with me. And so we see here a picture of God. When you see children, you see who meets their needs, but I want to go further than this. Notice what Jesus is rebuking them for here. He says, let the children come to who? Go back to Mark chapter 10, verse 13, or verse 14. Where does he want the children to go? To who? To him. So in other words, bring the children to who? To Jesus, right? Bring the children to Jesus. Now, how do you do that today? We can't bring them to physical Jesus here on earth, ascended Jesus. So today I would say, here's how you bring them to Jesus. Okay, get this. You bring them to Jesus in the way you interact with the child. On a personal level, when you see them the way Jesus sees them, you embody Jesus to them. Guess how you bring people to Jesus? Guess how you bring children to Jesus? By embodying Jesus to them the way you see them. Do you love children when you see them? Do you give them a high five, a hug? Do you remember their names? Guess who you're bringing to them every time you see them that way? Who are you bringing to them? Jesus. You're bringing Jesus to the kids. Now that might seem so... So insignificant, but what Jesus sees is this is fraught with significance. When you greet a child today at the end of this service, you are embodying Jesus. If you have the heart of Jesus here, you're actually embodying Jesus to the children and you're bringing Jesus to the children in just saying hi, in just giving a high five. You're welcoming them the way God welcomes children and thus you portray God every single time you greet a child. Isn't that amazing? That you get to portray God every single time you interact with kids. What a privilege that you get to portray God and see God as you get to enact and embody God to the child. In greeting them. In welcoming them. That's number four. Number five. Last, last way you see what you see in kids. So you see 
a Christian, you see your need, you see the gospel, you see the Father. And fifthly here, lastly, in terms of this, what you see, you see an invitation. Whenever you look at a kid, you see an invitation. An invitation to what? Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 36 and 37. Turn a page back. Mark 9, 36 and 37. Then he took a child, Jesus did, and had him stand among them, taking him in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name, welcomes who? Every time you welcome a child, who do you welcome? Jesus. But it goes further. And whoever welcomes Jesus does not welcome Jesus, but who? Him who sent me. And who's that? The Father. Get this. Every time you welcome a child, God is inviting you to welcome God. You get an invitation to commune with God just by hugging a child. It's an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to communion. It's an invitation to worship the Father when you interact with children. You get God himself when you interact with a child. Who wants more of God? Who wants to be closer to God? Who wants to enjoy God because he is good and kind and righteous and glorious? Christians want more of God. And so, therefore, we ought to welcome children. So, question, what do you see when you see children? Do you see a kingdom possessor, a Christian, a picture of a Christian? Do you see the need of all humanity for salvation? Do you see the gospel that they get a free gift if they would just receive it? Do you see the Father who meets needs? And do you see an invitation to commune with God when you see a child. Jesus sees all of that when he sees children. So when his disciples are there saying, get these kids out of here. What are you doing bringing your kids here? Can't you see Jesus is busy? Can you feel the indignation of Jesus with what he sees and what they don't see? No wonder he's indignant. How dare you stop children? Don't you see What it means to be a child? Don't you see what they portray? And so the command is to see Jesus or see kids the way Jesus sees kids and praise God that he gives us many opportunities week in and week out to interact with children. Number two, and this is shorter. That's a big one. And that's the main one. Receive children the way Jesus did. And it's just the last verse. Let's just look at this last verse. Mark 10, 16. Mark 10, verse 16 says this. After, so Jesus teaches this and then he displays it. How does Jesus receive them in verse 16? He takes them in his arms, carries them, carrying children. Now this is not, don't, pick, don't start picking up 12-year-old kids and being like, I'm being like Jesus. That's awkward, weird, you know. Little babies, you know, Adonijah, little babies like that, that's fine. You know, 12-year-old kid, my son's nine, don't pick him up, that's weird. Um, but, Put your arms around them in ways that are appropriate. High fives are fine, but interact with the kids. Jesus was affectionate towards the kids. He took an interest in them. And remember, like I told you when we went through Mark 9, you don't get a benefit from them. The kids don't repay your service. But that's okay, because you're communing with God. And that shows your humility, and that shows your communion with God. So, So put your arms around them. Show them warmth. Show them affection. Greet children. Know their names. Learn their names. We don't have too many kids in our church. Lord willing, we'll have more. Some of you say, we do have too many. No, we need more, right? We have a lot of empty chairs here for 
for for um, new Christians and and other Christians to to come and join our church family. But put your arms around kids in appropriate ways and bless them. And that's the second point. So show affection. Secondly, Jesus blesses them. So and now when you bless back in those days, you you put your hand on them and you would say a blessing on them. May God bless you. Or the most famous blessing of all. Number 6, 24 to 26, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. And so a, a blessing is sort of like a prayer and like encouragement at the same time. It's not straight encouragement. So it's not me telling a child, you know, God loves you. It's not me telling the child God loves you. And it's not me praying, God, would you show favor on this child? It's me actually talking to the child but calling on God. May God bless you. May God protect you. May God show favor on you. So it's sort of like a half blessing, half encouragement. That's what a blessing is. And this is not necessarily saving. Some people, some of my mentors have said, this proves that all these children were saved because Jesus only blesses those who are saved. I think it's more like praying for non-Christians even. Will all non-Christians you pray for get saved? Hopefully not. And not that I don't want them to be saved, but hopefully you're praying for all non-Christians, right? Hopefully you're praying for so many non-Christians that you just, you're praying for them all. Okay, so, so the point here is, it's, blessing a child is not necessarily guaranteeing their salvation. It's like praying for their salvation and asking God to a- interact and, and be active in their lives. And so bless children. Practice ble- blessing your own children first. I would say to fathers, before your kids go to sleep, I learned this from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. Whenever my kids go to sleep, I put my hand on their head and I bless them. And I say, number six, 24 to 26. My mom used to give me a really hard time. Sorry, mom, to put you on blast here. um, That we didn't do a child dedication. You know, where's the child dedication? Because in Filipino culture, uh, godparents is is a really big deal. And I say, I dedicate my child every night. You know, because they actually do that ironic blessing in a child dedication. But I dedicate my kids every single night. You know, nothing against child dedications. I'm just saying that for me, it was more like the whole point of it is is being a a parent and then letting them interact with the church family where they will be blessed. Closing application before we're done. For parents, three encouragements. Number one, parents, hang in there. Okay? Hang in there, parents. You're okay. You're going to be fine. Just keep going. Number two for parents, feel God loving you through your constant opportunities to serve your kids. Parents, you should feel more loved. If you have this vision of children, which means every time you look at your children and they live with you, you're seeing glimpses of God's glory. And number three for parents, feel free to ask the church family for help with time, with babysitting, with other needs. Now, our church family will say no sometimes. Maybe they can't meet the need, but we are a church family. And so as parents, don't be scared. Actually, you should be encouraged to ask for help from other church family. If you need to run an errand, you parents... If you're married, you need to go on dates sometimes, okay? So go go tell another church family, hey, can you watch my kids for a few, um, you know, for two hours? I need to take my wife on a date. Great, do that. Ask for help. Now, closing with church. How, do, how does this apply to us as a church? Number one, this means that all of us church members, as a church family, we need to see kids theologically here and in the neighborhood. See them the way Christ sees them. All of us members need to do that. Number two, we don't only pray for each other as members. We should be praying for each other's children. Okay? I, I haven't put that on the children on the, on the members list. 
That's my fault. I will change the, the members prayer list to add the children next to their names. So you can pray for the children by name. Pray for the parents who are the primary disciplers and pray that you would have a chance to bless these children. Number three, volunteer for the children's ministry. We still need help in the children's ministry. We need a few more volunteers to fill it out. Volunteer in the children's ministry where you get to gospelize and bless these kids once a month in the rotation. And number four, and this is just a really side note, kind of off to the side, but uphold and support our child protection policy. We are going to be implementing a child protection policy in this church to keep against child predators. And so as we start to implement this, um, let's, let's be, for the children's ministry, for me as the pastor and for the members, let's all uphold it. You notice Ken says that parents need to bring their kids, right? That's part of it, but we need to implement a full-on um, thing here because um, we just need to do it to protect our children, okay? But that's part of blessing and serving our children. So see children the way Christ sees them and serve and bless and receive children the way Christ did. Let's pray. Father, help us to see children and see the gospel and see our need and see what a Christian is and help us to see you, Heavenly Father, and help us to see an invitation to worship. And we pray, Lord, that all the churches and all the Christians here in Southern California and our association and beyond and other denominations, all Christians everywhere would see children this way and that this text would have its way in our hearts, that we might bless children and evangelize them and gospelize them and that you might work in their lives. So, Father, work through us into the next generation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.